Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This week on Around the Coin Podcast, Mike Townsend, Faisal Khan, and Brian Romley give you the high-level view of how the payment ecosystem works and the trillion-dollar idea to create a trust network for Bitcoin transactions. Around the Coin Podcast. Uh, Faisal has this post and he gets a ton of inquiries about it and it's, it's viewed, especially when you're an entrepreneur with some technical skills and you want to get into the payments world, you look at this and you think this is the holy grail, right? This is sort of the answer that's going to point me in the right, the right direction and tell me everything I need to know to get started. And for so many people looking for challenges and uh, opportunities to, to fix in the payment industry, you know, they don't come in with years of experience uh, so you have to play catch up, and having a answer like this that sort of just gives a high level description of everything, all the different categories, and sort of the whole process flow of, of money is tremendously valuable. And to hear it, you know, from our own words, I think would be just icing on the cake for for so many people. Um, so it almost be a, a a lesson in a sense, um, or a more of an instructor type uh, podcast where we. Just dive in and, and sort of explain it. It'd be interesting to have you know Brian and Faisal go back and forth on you know almost going down this answer, which covers the vast system, and and of course it'd be interesting to hear across international borders where payments vary and maybe how banking infrastructure and credit card uh, checks are all set up differently. Um, but I think that would be incredibly interesting. Um, so this is the answer that we're referring to. Um, I don't know, Faisal, do you want to start it off? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I wrote the answer because um, I, I guess everyone was looking at an atlas or a roadmap uh, you know, for payments. And the one question they wanted to know was, well, how does one get started in the payment systems business? Or you know, what are payment networks? What are payment systems? How, how, how do payments work? There's no Bible for it. Um, there hasn't been one for a long, long time. Uh, that's all encompassing. There is no, you know, the proverbial for for dummies guide for it even. Uh, that's a good business idea, by the way. Uh, but uh, I wrote this answer just of what I had learned over the years of what I knew about payment systems. And uh, when I go and talk and explain to people about payment systems and how they evolve and so forth, 
you know, people don't have the time or the bandwidth to really, you know, sit down and listen to long stories. So this was a very amalgamated version, a very short version of, well, these are the different facets. Uh, this is what it is all about, you know. This, the basic of any payment system is, you know, a bank. Someone is a buyer, a, a buyer and a seller, if you will. And money has to move in between those two people. And how it moves uh, is what payment systems are all about. And at the back of any payment system in this world is a bank. You cannot, uh, uh, at present, uh, you cannot do transactions without a bank. And I go on to explain it. You know what a payment system is all about. You know what's how does a central bank or a commercial bank look at a payment system? What are the definitions and so forth? And I take it from there on. Had a lot of had a lot of uh, feedback on this thing. Got a lot of comments. Got a, helped a lot of people out. You know, in starting up. So uh, uh, great. Uh, milestone a bookmark to start with you know sure is sure is um i mean how how would you look at the the whole macro view brian of the the ecosystem i mean what are the things that got you inspired or <clears throat> what are some things you'd want to start off by telling someone first thinking about learning the complexities of the industry oh thank you mike and faisal I think the thing that we need to really look at is how did the payment card get established? I mean, what was the purpose? Why did somebody want to put something on a charge card, a credit card, and later something became a debit card? Collectively, we'll call them payment cards. Well, you can go back to Frank uh, McNamara. And uh, Frank was out to dinner back in, the, I guess, 1949, and um, he forgot his wallet. And it was a client he was out to dinner with, and he was quite embarrassed. And he said to himself, what am I going to do here? So he called his wife, and his wife had to come out in a taxi in New York City and deliver money. Uh, and it, again, he thought about it. And the gentleman he was sitting with kind of noticed it, and they started the conversation. He goes, you know, in my store that I shop for my ties, you know, they let me put it on, on a tab. And uh, Frank got to thinking, goes, I wonder if I could put together, you know, a similar scenario, but for independent businesses around the area, it became Diners Club and not an accident by name. It really was sort of a club. It was an idea of an exclusive, exclusive group of individuals who have met a certain credit criteria and were able to charge something. Now, charge versus credit. A charge is a charge card in a traditional sense requires you to pay off the balance within 30 days of receipt of, uh, of notice in general. Uh, some had revolving charges, which were a little longer, and that was a more uh, along the lines of, um, of store cards, and we can cover that. But the charge card started the credit card, uh, and the, the premise was quite simple. If somebody was good for 30 days, are they good for longer periods of time? American Express obviously helped occupy that area, their angle was uh, to uh, charge travel and entertainment. These became collectively known as travel and entertainment cards. And then you pull out further, you have the beginning of, uh, of Bank AmeriCard and, and uh, what later became MasterCard. And uh, those were started with the premise of credit to begin with. And there was full underwriting that was taking place for those types of cards. Uh, the early cards didn't have what we would consider full underwriting. These were individuals of notable um, 
uh, stature within society. They were generally very well-to-do individuals, and there was no um, central credit source uh, to uh, to be had at that time. And uh, so convergence of technology had to take place for the rise of the payment card. And it was all computer and technology. Without computers and technology, without it being easily accessible, uh, meaning not using punch cards or, or teletype machines, uh, you know, video display monitors, you couldn't have devised the credit card or payment card system we have today. Now, although it looks extremely uh, archaic uh, to our modern modern eyes, um, the functionality really doesn't change. I mean, we're, we're still using the same things. The transport protocols and the, the languages, you know, it's no longer COBOL, it's based on other languages, uh, you know, it's changed. You know, instead of having dial-up uh, nodes and things of that nature, which were the, the, the backbone uh, of, of our system, it's now you know, TCIP and TCPIP and all other types of uh, uh, encrypted mechanisms on top of that. So it hasn't changed to that regard. So what what's really going on? Well, there's two components, right? You have the merchant and you have the consumer. And there's responsibilities that are being established for both entities. The consumer, they have a relationship with the bank because the bank is going to take responsibility for those cons- that the consumers they bring into a payment card environment. They're going to take um, responsibility over paying whatever they owe to the system. So if I say Frank McNamara is, uh, is worthy of $10,000 of credit and he goes out and buys $10,000 worth of goods one month, let's just say one merchant to make it simple. It's unlikely, really can't use it to pay for a car as much as people think you can. There's complications. But let's just say you can. And uh, he put $10,000 down on a car. The merchant accepts it. Um, Frank goes bankrupt the very next day. Um, Does the car company suffer if he paid $10,000 for a car and he now owns it? No. In a technical view of this, now the bank that sponsored Frank into the system is responsible and they take the losses. So the banks are in there to cover liability. Liability takes place for a number of different reasons. In the old days, it was just the, the, the delay it took to get the information into all parties. Today, that's not so much an issue. And obviously, with modern transport mechanisms like Bitcoin, you know, information is relatively instantaneous until you know, encoded by the blockchain. Blockchain, it's, you know, let's call it 15 minutes or, or so. But now, on the other side, you have the merchant. And the merchant is now accepting this payment. There's a bank standing in for the merchant. And they're taking responsibility over the merchant's actions. Now, the merchant's responsibilities are much more complex because there's consumer protection law, which allow the consumer to be protected if the merchant were to do something that is not uh, fair, honest, equitable, you know, integrity, all down the line. Uh, so essentially what happens if uh, a consumer came into a business, bought the car, and, um, you know, three days later, uh, their warranty stated that they would be covered over certain types of damage, and the car dealer decides that they're not going to cover that, the consumer can make a chargeback complaint. And that chargeback complaint ultimately falls on the shoulder 
of the bank that sponsored the merchant into the system. So now you have a liability on the bank side of the merchant, and now you have a liability uh, on the bank side of the consumer, and there are different types of liabilities. But you can that's a very general overview of, of, of the difficulties that arise. Those difficulties are there because of credit primarily, because most of us think of payment cards and sure, we might use a debit card, but if we're making other discretionary pur purchases, we're really, we're really using the credit element. In fact, when you're not using the PIN number on most debit cards in the United States, you're being granted credit because you don't necessarily, in most cases, have to have the exact amount that you're charging on your debit card uh, at the time of the transaction if a PIN number is not being used. Uh, the bank has established um, a, an agreement with you. Uh, it's very similar to um, uh, bounce protection uh, of a checking account, which allows you to go over by a certain percentage or a certain margin, and you may or may not pay a whole lot because of that, again, according to your relationship. Now, that's an extension of credit, and it's hard for people who don't actually view this very closely to understand what's going on in the background. So, if you were to come and look at this industry with completely new eyes and you say, why do all these people get to make so much money? Um, let's just say the laws of, um, of Darwinian laws of competition have actually whittled that money down to a relatively small, uh, small bit when you really look at the liabilities involved. Well, what are the major liabilities involved? Well, obviously, the card issuing bank in this case uh, is fully liable for whatever that consumer does with that credit card. And if they don't pay the bill, they have to go and track down that consumer and get them to pay the bill some, somehow. And there's laws and regulations and rules on how they can do it. At some point, they're out of luck. And the only thing that's left is, uh, is um, a bankruptcy proceeding. Now, on the other side of that is the merchant. And again, the merchant can go bankrupt. So let's just say a merchant did $100,000 in transactions. And then he goes bankrupt. And let's just say that merchant is uh, a cruise line and that was six months out and he's a small cruise line you know a hundred thousand dollars maybe a ten ten thousand dollars a ticket which is not a significant amount for some cruises now all of those consumers need to be made whole where are they going to get the money from uh, if the merchant is bankrupt the money is unavailable for perhaps forever but if there is some uh, some value in the company uh, a short period of time uh, is not going to be available certainly not in time for that consumer to go on another trip it's that money is, is gone so what's available is a chargeback mechanism who bears the burden of that the the, the uh, acquiring bank uh, the merchant processing bank they are going to take that loss and they're going to make whole all of the consumers um, and we don't even think twice about this if we were to make a reservation for uh, airline travel on a, on a major airline. This happened in the 70s and 80s. And that airline went bankrupt. Um, the very first thing your bank says to do is call and get a chargeback. And it, it's a no-brainer. You automatically get the money. Now, if the, bank, if, if the company is bankrupt, millions and millions of dollars are now falling on the shoulder of the bank that allowed that merchant into the system. Here lies some of the huge liabilities. Now, banks can really get damaged by this. And a lot of people don't recognize that more than a handful of banks went into spectacular 
bankruptcy because of merchant processing. And uh, banks were in industries that were uh, questionable. Uh, they were in high-risk industries. Some of them were on, on the Internet. Uh, we're doing Internet processing. And um, millions and millions of dollars of chargebacks actually uh, made the bank have to liquidate. And uh, so this is the way I think you have to sort of start looking at this industry is, you know, it's not just technology. It's people relationships. And as much as we will want to try to, you know, uh, codify that and make it all an automatic process, uh, you, you can't use a computer to collect a bad debt. You can't really, you know, I mean, sure, you could send notices and things like that. There's a whole lot of things that are going on in, as far as trust on, on uh, identifying a, a worthy consumer. And there's a whole lot going on uh, to identify trust on a merchant. Now, on the merchant side, I think i got to make this very clear. We have all been set up to believe that approving a merchant to accept a credit card is no, a no-brainer. Give me an email address. Give me a bit of information. You could start accepting credit cards. Well, sure. That's uh, what, we, what we call an aggregation model. That's where a company is inserting themselves between the merchant and the acquiring bank. Let's call it PayPal. Let's call it Square. And essentially what they're doing is they're saying, well, we're a large enough company and we're going to th create reserve accounts that are large enough where we're going to offset the potential liability uh, to the acquiring bank uh, to the satisfaction of whoever's participating in the regulation of uh, interpretation of the regulations as they stand. Now, if you were to try to create an aggregation account in the 1980s, it would be a federal crime. Uh, you could not commingle the funds into one business uh, for the transactions of multiple businesses. Um, some changes were made that aren't very clear, but they're still obviously these companies operate, which allow commingling of funds. Um, you know, uh, it's otherwise known as money laundering. Now, even though you can track all the funds going in and tra track the funds going out, there's still archaic maybe banking laws that still make this a, a bit of a, a questionable type of scenario. I'm not saying that any of these companies are doing anything particularly illegal. What I am saying is that the interpretations are, are much more broad than they were in the 80s and 90s, uh, early 90s. So now we have a stand-in company who is saying, okay, Mr. Merchant, uh, I'll allow you to come aboard. But if you do any large transactions, I'm going to start really scrutinizing. You're going to be asking you for a lot more information. This is where the public image of a lot of these uh, companies start sort of uh, defeating themselves. Because what happens is if you're a reasonably large merchant and you come into the program and you operate and start doing things that are outside the normal standards, your money can be frozen. Uh, you can have your merchant account terminated. But most certainly what's going to happen is a tremendous amount of information is going to be required that you didn't give the first time you signed up. Uh, they're going to want uh, tax returns, banking account statements. So when, when is this an issue for an entrepreneur that's you know, using a bank and having customers? You know, when do they have to start thinking about this? Is there, a, is there a dollar amount or an industry that they 
You mean uh, if you're using uh, an aggregation account like Square or PayPal? Sure, exactly. Or no, even even if you're if you're building one, if you're thinking about building, you know, uh, say what's a company? Say WePay, right? Sure. WePay has a certain demographic of customers uh, that process payments under their their name. Um, you know, they process through some bank. I know Stripe uses or has used Wells Fargo. You know, sure. h- how do how does if you're Stripe or thinking about building a competitor or some other offering, how do you even present to a bank? You know, who do you talk? Do you just email them in and, and say, "Hey, I, I want to oh. do this"? Do you? How do you know who the right bank is to go to? Is there smaller ones that you would go to in the United States, and then is it different across the world? You know, how do you do it in Faisal's part of town? Okay, uh, in my part of the world, if you were to start up an aggregation service for payments, uh, you need to go to a bank, and the bank will need to underwrite you. Uh, and underwriting, in plain and simple word, means they will—they're going to take a risk at, uh, with you. Uh, but with your money. So that means if you're going to be underwriting services for credit card processing, you need to put up a deposit. That deposit should adequately cover all the chargeback and fraud cases that will happen. So if you're saying processing, let's say a million, you, you forecast a million dollars a month and your chargeback rate is, let's say, 1%. So $10,000 is something that you need to deposit over there that that will actually cover it because that money needs to be paid right away back to the uh, user who's going to be claiming the chargeback or whoever is claiming the fraud. So, you know, in in most typical cases, the bank will say, well, you know, give me a $50,000 deposit and I will cap it to about $25,000, which is 2.5% of your million dollars that you want to charge. You cross $25,000, I'm going to have to look at your model with more scrutiny, like Brian said. Uh, so the banks are always safe. Uh, let there be no doubt about that. They are very safe. Uh, the only way they can really go uh, be liable for that uh, loss or that money or that risk is if you know uh, the proverbial storm comes in and you know every, there's a run on that credit card company or the aggregator or so forth. There's a large number of chargebacks, but that's why you have systems and so forth. So if you're building a company, the first thing you do is go to a bank, say, well, I want to build a system, they'll take a deposit and so forth. Now, once you have your system up and running and a merchant comes in, you will do the same thing with the merchant. You, you are, Either you underwrite that merchant or you take a credit risk on them. And in most cases in the U.S., you're taking a credit risk on them. Uh, in some way, the U.S. model is not very... Uh, uh, welcome to the deposit, uh, uh, i.e., you know, a merchant cannot actually say, well, you know, I may be a high risk and I'm willing to give you the money for it and keep it in your bank. It really doesn't work that way because all those high-risk transactions funnel up back to the bank and the bank will look at it and say, well, you know what, I see a lot of high-risk transactions, I see a lot of chargebacks, I'm going to reduce your processing limits and so forth. So in this part of the world, it's the liability just goes down the ladder, down the, you know, down down to the last person, which in this case is the merchant. Uh, so it's it's a pretty simple, straightforward process over here. So if you want to get started, talk to a bank, put your deposit up. When you aggregate or start collecting merchants, you will ask them to put a deposit up for their processing needs. Interesting. Well, you know, I would yeah. add that getting an aggregation account in the United States, similar to what. Uh, uh, Square is doing, for example, is um, easier and harder at the same time. Uh, PayPal broke open the doors for this concept. There really wasn't anything allowed prior to that. You know, I had merchants throughout two decades almost 
that would come to me and say, hey, I'd like to get myself set up so I can have uh, an online mall towards you know the beginning of the internet, for example. I had a lot of people who wanted to create their own online mall, and they would become the central pay- payment authority. Is a mall just the equivalent of an e-commerce site? Yeah, an e-commerce site. You know, mm-hmm. there, there. Everybody had this dream. I'll be the mall. I'll be the bill collector, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll charge twelve percent to everybody on the mall, and uh, also charge the credit cards. So here's how the banks look at it: uh, Do you own the products that you're selling? Um, well, no. Do you ever take possession of the products? No. Uh, are you shipping the products? No. Um, what are you going to do if the products aren't shipped and the merchant does not fulfill upon uh, his commitments? Well, you know, that's not my problem. Well, it is because you're the billing agency at this point. You're the last point in the chain between the transaction with the consumer and yourself. So anytime you insert yourself in the middle between the transaction, Legally, you're now part of the liability loop. And if you're the last point of contact, you're the primary point of liability. So that's why payments, you know, the allure of payments is, wow, it's once I get in there, I'm going to make so much money. Uh, But the reality is it's a lot more complex than that. Now, when Frank McNamara was sitting there inventing Diners Club at Major Cabin, the Major Cabin Grill in New York, what was a liability there? You know, if if he was going to charge his meal, uh, uh, Major's Cabin Grill already knew Frank. He was a regular customer. They could have easily have probably created their own house credit system uh, or charge system, if you will. And, and, and certainly that took place. I mean, that's nothing new. That's gone on since uh, there's been commerce in the world. But um, the management of that is quite difficult. And it's also quite embarrassing to try to collect a bill from your regular customers. Right. Try it. Right. right? You're, you go there and work to get customers. So hard. Anybody who's ever created a product will and go then, out in the world and do all this work to attract a customer. And then it's time to pay the bill. And there's this sort of dance that we have to go through and uh, uh, choreograph on what is the proper way to collect this bill. And the problem is most young companies would rather not even have anything that they can sell because they're so afraid of that confrontation because uh, they see collecting money as a confrontation. No. This, is, uh, this is a problem. Yeah. Uh, so, so what Frank created with Diners Club is a, is a third party. So the merchant felt whole when that person left. If they had an authorization, and the authorization at that time was Frank's signature, right? Frank signed the check. And, and they looked at the Diners Club card, which had his signature. They looked at it and said, that looks like Frank. And they took that check, which is just a plain restaurant check, and they mailed it in to uh, Diners Club. And Diners Club goes, okay, uh, uh, $12.90. Boy, that was a, an expensive group of four at, yeah. uh, to dinner in 1950. And, and they, you know, they aggregated that over 12, uh, you know, sorry, 30 days. And there would be a bill uh, that Frank would pay through the mail. And so th- what was the risk? The risk was if if Frank were to go bankrupt, uh, a small uh, bit of uh, their profits would, would be lost. You know, those days are yeah. over because you, you, can't, you can't really build something exactly like that because the world is full of all these different credit vehicles and payment vehicles that 
you know, why would you why would you, you want to do so that? So I think one thing that would be really interesting as far as uh, the payment flow perspective, uh, I know at one time I had just been really struggling to understand the details of it. Uh, and I think in large part, you know, if you're, if you're going to enter the payments industry in any aspect, you want to understand more than just your little sliver that you're working on. And uh, many people, I feel, don't truly understand where their money goes after I swipe my credit card. There's a great uh, sort of high-level process flow, you could call it, that Faisal includes in his answer uh, on, on Quora here. And it shows the consumer, and it shows their little head, and they're swiping their credit card. And then it goes into this, you know, the image of a bank that's the consumer's uh, issuing bank. And then it goes into this giant, you know, mysterious vortex uh, of Visa, MasterCard, Amex. And then it magically comes out on the other side of the acquiring bank. And then that money goes, uh, the funds transport into the merchant's, uh, merchant's storefront. Or the, it's sent back to the merchant saying it's approved. I mean, what, what is actually going on? What, are, what, what is, a lot of people will say, you know, sort of entrepreneurs in the payment space that it's inevitable that, you know, Visa, MasterCard, Amex are going to be disrupted and that these 3% fees are going to be reduced to zero. I mean, what are they doing in this vortex that is making it so valuable? Let's let's look at the disruption again. We got to constantly keep this in our vision. As long as you are granting credit, there's going to be the ugly side of going after somebody who doesn't pay the bill. And when you ask why is somebody paying 3%, well, let's take a look at that. Does the money really move instantaneously in a credit card transaction? No. The merchant acquiring bank is actually granting a loan, let's call it 30 days, to the merchant based upon the fact that a transaction had taken place that met all the criteria. Uh, there was an authorization. There was a, available funds on the, um, on the card that was being used, and it was presented the right way electronically. Does the money instantly move from the consumer to the merchant? Not currently. What happens is it is authorized, but, it, but it's not settled. There's authorization that this means money is available, and then there's settlement. And I can get into the complexities of why those two things are separate. But a lot of us who are not in payments will just assume authorization and settlement the same thing. No, it's not. Uh, authorization is taking away, let's say you have a $10,000 credit line, right? And you go um, to uh, the fueling station and you swipe your card. If you had uh, access to your bank statement uh, for that particular card, you might see that that fueling station just took uh, $100 of uh, temporary credit off your card. Now. A lot of people go up, get up in arms over this. Why did they take $100 of my credit limit? Now, this is different for a debit card in the United States, but let's use a, a you know, credit card for this point. Why did they take $100? That's something called a pre-authorization. What it's doing is saying, I'm running an automatic fuel pump, and it's a, there's a good chance that $100 is going to peak out in our day and age. is not a big deal for mo- most vehicles, larger vehicles especially. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to assume that I'm clear up to $100 because I don't want this pump to run to $100 and then find that the credit card only had $25 credit. What would I do then? Is somebody going to come running out of the little cubicle and saying, sir, sir, your credit card was declined. Well, the fuel's in my car already. I didn't know that. So that's the problem. So it was pre-authorized. So the credit 
is a pool. The authorization or pre-authorization is not a cup taken out of that pool. It's just a little line being drawn, a barrier saying that this part of the pool is no longer mm. available. Now, when once that transaction is consummated, let's say the pump is put back, given perfect ideal set of circumstances, that pre-authorization should be released and uh, $87.20, if that was the transaction amount, would be taken from the available credit right. and the rest of the $100 that was pre-authorized is liberated back into the greater pool. Right. Now, did that money really get moved yet? Not at all. At the batches are the groupings of transactions that took place in a 24-hour period. Now, in some very large businesses, the batches are much more rapid, but most, a vast majority of merchants, batches take place on a 24-hour period for psychological and other logical reasons, right? You, you, trying, to, trying to reconcile 49 it, closed yeah, batches in one day. That's batches with the merchant. Uh, the, the batch between Visa and the bank actually happens every minute or 60 minutes or 30 minutes. That, I mean, the, the bank will actually release the fund into the nostril account of Visa right there and then. Uh, yes, under most circumstances, um, there is a cycle. It's based upon who is the back-end processor, and we can get into that. But let's start from the merchant and work our way up. So the merchant has a 24-hour batch cycle, right? And what what's really taking place? Well, what's taking place is at that point when the batch closes, it's saying, okay, for this 24-hour period, uh, I'm taking that, I'm putting it in an envelope, and I'm making a deposit at the bank. And let's call that deposit $10,000 for simplicity. Now, the bank says, okay, um, we have no reason to believe that anything in this batch is illicit or wrong, stolen credit cards or anything like that. But you're a relatively new merchant, and you're now not a fuel dealer. You're, um, uh, you're an Internet merchant, and it's your first couple of weeks. And we're not quite sure whether we're going to trust that the $10,000 we did this day and the $10,000 we do the next day is not mm. full of you know, credit cards that may turn out to be stolen. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were part of the transactions. Maybe they're from the target breach. So now what you have, let's call it the acquiring bank, but what we're really calling the acquiring bank is the umbrella of groups all the way down to a PayPal or a Square. Because at the end of the day, Chase Bank is responsible for everything that Square does. Everything. It is not Square and the consumer. It's Chase Bank and, and, and the consumer's bank. Why can't they uh, why can't they get around that? I mean a lot of a lot of guys will say laws. what it's very simple. Do you want private companies who can go bankrupt and take your money with them? Or do you want a financial institution who can't really go bankrupt and is protected by the FDIC? So the reason why banks stand in for all these things is because consumers have been burned before. So, you know, once you start, and I'm not saying I'm for or against this, and I'm not saying there aren't, aren't ways to fix this, but I'm saying this is the reason why it is that way today. So everybody says, well, that's just an old boy system. Yeah, it is. But when, let me tell you this. Let's say any, any one of us listening to this show that are in the United States came home and opened up our mail and looked at our debit or credit card statement and saw transactions to the tune of, let's just say, almost our entire credit line 
that we did not approve or authorize. What goes through your body? Stop, think, what do you feel like? First off, you're going to get tense. That's my main credit card. I have no credit left. I didn't, I didn't fly to, to Brazil. I didn't buy, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, $25,000 ring at uh, Tiffany's. I, what is this? The first thing you do is you are psychologically shocked. The second thing you do is you pick up a phone and you call your bank. And you know, as a consumer in the United States, that you have a whole litany of laws protecting you from what just took place. And this is what's happening to a lot of people in the United States right now because of the target breach. There are people that are opening up their statements as we speak and they're saying, I didn't do that. I, I've met so many people that have seen this. Now, we're seeing the fuses, the fuse boxes and all the protection mechanisms that were built into the consumer laws. We call up and we say, I didn't authorize this transaction. So our bank answered the phone and says, yes, how can I help you? I didn't authorize this transaction. I understand, sir or ma'am, we're going to get this reversed. W which ones the, were the, not yours? And they go down mm -hmm. the list. Now, if it was a credit card, you didn't lose anything. You lost credit line. If that was your debit card, that money was taken out of your bank account. And I have met people who, who were in love with their debit card because it was instant money transaction. It was money in my bank account. I don't right. want any credit. I know people who had their debit card compromised at Target, and their entire bank account was zeroed oh, out. And imagine what it's like to try to pay, pay your rent. Now, as us technologists, we'll have a grand time reinventing oh, yeah. the payment system. That's great. That's awful. Now, now, go out into the real world and tell me what it feels like when you're, when, when you're not a technologist, and, 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 but you're just a citizen, citizen out there. All of a sudden, the world looks different when you're a victim. Now, if you called that bank and you said, I didn't authorize those transactions, they're going to send you a letter, uh, and it, it may or may not require a notary. Most of them don't, which is simply say, I didn't authorize this, I didn't go to Brazil, I didn't do all this. At the very least, it's a hassle on a credit card. So most credit cards, you know, especially the A-line credit cards, are immediately going to credit you money, money back. They don't want to lose you as a, so, as a consumer. Yeah. And, and as a debit card, that's a different thing. The laws are there yeah, to protect gone. you, but you may, not, gone. you may not, well, no, you can get your money back uh, in the United States, but you're, you may not see the funds, it, it, especially if you're with a really small credit union that doesn't really have a whole lot of, you know, uh, leeway. If they had, let's just say, 60% of their cardholders uh, part of the target breach, and, you know, let's talk uh, uh, maybe a few hundred thousand to a few million dollars. To a small credit union, that is money that's not theirs. And they have to go and they have to get that money and credit back the consumer and make them whole. But they're not necessarily going to get the money that was stolen back very quickly. So, again, we don't like to look what's behind the curtain. None of us really like to visit the sausage factory. We don't want to see what's going on. Uh, we don't want to see the sausage so, machine. Oh, we have All right. Faisal, so now a, we have a complex. Well, let me finish this uh, this point. It's very important because it's so easy to lose this. And and again, this is not to dissuade entrepreneurs who want to change the payment world. As soon as you say that's too much, and I agree with you, it probably is too much for merchants. It's probably too much for consumers. Should consumers be paying thirty percent to get credit? I don't know. Maybe maybe not. Should merchants be paying up to three percent? I don't know. Maybe maybe not. But the point is before you go there and say I'm a disruptor and carry that flag 
go and, and tell me what you're going to do for your grandma if, uh, if there's a breach in your system. You know, uh, and, and again, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Now, if we create an instant cash system, it's the buyer beware. Now, the I, I, I would just, I would love to know, like, I, I, it seems, it seems conceptually, you know, whole, it makes sense, but what are the details? You know, like the visa system, like where, where did it come from to be able to process 2.9%, right? Like what are their actual costs? What are, you know, Faisal, do you want to talk maybe to what, when you have companies like SagePay and First Data and um, Evalon Payments, a lot of these, what they call processors or acquirers, what is the tangential difference for someone and what do they actually do for the ecosystem? Because you have guys in the bottom, what, what they call gateways, uh, PayPal, Braintree, um, but a lot of people haven't heard of these or they maybe hear the word and they're, they're not really sure on what they mean or they think it's the same thing, a processor and acquirer and how they talk to the bank and, and how Visa sort of does their thing. And it seems, it seems con- kind of confusing, I think, to a lot of people. Well, every every element that you introduce into the payment system is going to make money on that. So the issuing bank will make it, the acquiring bank will make it, the card scheme that they're writing on, uh, the logo that they're using, for example, Visa or MasterCard or American Express, they make money. And then obviously, if you have a payment network, uh, you know, like a payment gateway or a payment uh, uh, network a system, essentially, uh, that is routing the transaction, handling and, and, and doing the work for you, they're going to make money on it. So as Brian said, when you when you charge the card for the merchant, the merchant is, is the person that's going to get paid at the very last moment. The money is, if you will, sitting in, 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 in with the banks, the brotherhood of the banks. It's either with the acquiring bank or the issuing bank. Uh, it's getting moved around and everyone's making money on it. They're making the transaction money on it. They're making the float money on it. It's the cost of funds is almost zero to them. Uh, the funds are almost immediately transferred into the Nostro accounts of the card schemes. Uh, where, when you know, when you say my, my bank has given me a Visa card, that means that Visa actually has an account with your bank. And whenever you charge money, and that's how settlement is done. So when you charge money, uh, it immediately goes into the Visa's Nostro account with the bank. And then obviously they have batch process and they move it across, you know, the issuing bank or the acquiring bank and so forth. And the payment networks obviously come into play and, and they help route the transactions because a gateway can connect to many other providers. They can connect to, uh, you know, Visa or MasterCard or American Express, JCB, China Union Pay, etc. So when they are routing all these transactions and they are essentially putting up for the uh, aggregator, if you will, all the fraud mechanisms, you know, the checks, the PCI compliance, etc. This, this all costs money to them, and you know they will take a chunk away. Um, the U.S. works slightly different from how you know the European markets work or how the Asian markets work, but the premise is basically the same. You charge money, uh, the money on the cre- and, and and let's say we're doing a credit card transaction. So the money is instantly taken away from your credit line into your, uh, let's say, the Visa's Nostro account. It is then pushed forward and, you know, it was, who was the acquiring network? That also depends a lot. Uh, I don't know if in the U.S., Brian, uh, do they have separate interchange fees for acquiring networks? I think they do, right? Well, yes, in, in a sense, um, you know, the acquirer, there's an acquirer fee. Uh, you know, they're not really considered interchange, you know, in a proper term. Um, mm. Interchange, as is defined in the United States, is the, the chart that you actually can read 
that's available on Visa's website or MasterCard's website. But that's not the whole story. That's just the interchange. The interchange is a fee that goes this is very I got to make this so clear because even people who have been working in payments for decades. Yeah, there's the interchange and and the swipe fee. Two well, there's things. Yeah, well, it's a lot of people say where does this interchange fee go? It doesn't go to Visa. It doesn't go to MasterCard. No, it'll the go interchange back to the, fee goes back to the card the issuing issue, bank. Issuer, issue, yeah, issuer. All right. So now, again, from from a perspective as as a consumer or a merchant, this is what for you know I've been selling merchant accounts for thirty years. Merchants scratch their head on this, and again, experts scratch their head on. Oh, hold it! The card issuing bank is making money on both sides of the transaction. Yes. Absolutely. What's the premise? The premise is from a very light marketing standpoint, the card issuer bank is sort of saying, I sent you a customer. Therefore, mm. I'm owed something to remunerate me because wow, that sale that sale may not have taken place unless there was credit available. Again, I mean, if, if, if I were to rephrase that in a more blunt manner, it's, sure. it's, the, kick, it's the kickback or the chargeback that's given back to the issuing bank. Yeah, but, but again, from their view, from their view is they're giving credit to the merchant. See, Visa and MasterCard really were not corporations. They were um, member mm -hmm. organizations or a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the banks controlled uh, the board. And it was only because they were sued by Walmart to protect themselves, they became public entities. Now, the, the ugly stepchild of bank, uh, payment cards is processing. The, the real control of payment cards is card issuing. All the money is made in card issuing. So if you wanted, if you really wanted to make a lot of money in payment, you really want to issue your own credit vehicle and uh, and get on the side of collecting consumer debt and all that kind of stuff. Because when you look at, let's just say Wells Fargo issues a credit card, and Wells Fargo says, "Okay, go out there. This is a reward card, and we're going to call this a uh, world." reward card under MasterCard's definition. Well, what does that mean to a merchant? What the world reward card means to a merchant is they could be paying north north of 2.79% under worst-case scenarios. Now, you're saying, hold it, 2.79, Square is charging me 2.75. Exactly. Square can charge you 2.75 because they built actuarial tables that said, well, we're going to lose money on that transaction. There's no doubt. There's no magic fairy dust here. There's no way to fix that. It is going to be 2.79% charge. So how does Square actuarialize this? They go back and they say, well, a, sub a substantial number of transactions are going to come in at uh, what's called today regulated debit. And what's that going to cost? 0.032%. Hold it. I'm paying 2.75% to Square. And if I get a debit card without a PIN number, it's less than half a percent. That's right. So they're playing this sort of bucket approach. They're saying uh, our actuarial models that we've built are going to say that so many of these types of cards and so many of that. And it's a sense, we call it running a casino. And in a sense, it really is. You're, you're working all the odds and you're hoping that only certain types of cards come in. And, and uh, I, I brought this up you know, in one of our prior shows, is that if you become an aggregator and one of your major merchants wind up getting nothing but business credit cards uh, and you're charging, say, 2.5% and most of those cards are being charged to you at wholesale, just interchange somewhere north of 3%, you're in hot water. 
And <clears throat> if you if you don't very quickly build a big enough portfolio, you're going to start losing money. So there are individual merchants within these companies that will lose money consistently. No matter what they do, they will lose money for the company. Mm, and that's just, why it's inordinately difficult to do this. You know, it's one of the reasons why PayPal almost went out of business before eBay purchased them is that they were playing this very close to the edge and be between fraud and miscalculating the mix of card types. They almost went out of business because of it. Or you could argue they did it perfectly. Well, yeah, well, you know, you know, one thing yeah, that is very important is very important to understand is people who talk about disruption is, uh, you know, we'll make the transaction go down to 0.2% or, you know, 0.25 or 0.1, what have you, is you have to understand the bank is not the issuing bank is was getting money previously when their cards were being used because they used to get this, you know, a, a certain percentage of that transaction. With you taking the charge down to, let's say, 0.1%, the issuing bank is not going to get anything, uh, so to speak. So they do discourage this thing. I don't know if channel blocking is available in the U.S. where, you know, they say, well, you know, with my card, you can't load a PayPal card. You have the right to do that. Uh, I don't know if that's available in the U.S. or is practiced in the U.S., but elsewhere in Europe, uh, I think in Europe, it's mandated by law that you have, you, you cannot channel block. But in Asia, in Southeast Asia, uh, you know, um, South Asia, it's uh, you can actually block a card from being loaded in a particular channel. So if you have a PayPal equivalent, you say, well, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to allow my customers to use my card for loading funds onto that particular payment vehicle because I don't get to make money on it. Mm. You, you know, there's here, variations here, of that out well, here. One, yeah. one, one thought I have, I think this would be tremendously valuable to get really clear, is when we say things like. You know, a bank is FDIC insured, and that's the reason why they're able to do the things that other companies can't. Um, you know, there's a process for becoming FDIC insured. It wasn't, you know, you're not you're not given this from birth of the company. The I would trust. You know, if you look at a company like Google, right? They have some of the smartest engineers in the world. You know, I'm not sure that 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 any bank card industry has the same equivalent value of engineers. So what I'm saying is. Why couldn't uh, there be a system where Google has a entity that is FDIC insured and becomes a bank and sort of owns that whole flow? Because what I'm willing to bet money on is that Google would do more efficiently with large amounts of data than, say, uh, Global Payments would or Chase Bank, right? I think I think oftentimes even when I talk to my bank. Uh, use fidelity, and they seem to sort of not make sense in their assessment of how they're flagging certain things. They flag we we, we buy advertising, uh, and they flag advertising almost week after week. Right? It's like their system. I almost sense the inefficiency in it, like they designed it twenty years ago. And if you're looking at your ability to aggregate large amounts of data and sort of make observations on which charges you think are fraud, and then present that to the consumer and say, you know, is this actually fraud? Is this true? You know, their system. I would argue is is far inferior to something Google could build. There's a company called Harbor Touch. It's a, a very successful point of sale system that uh, 
uh, is made in a lot of the bar and nightlife industry or offered to a lot of the bar and nightlife industries. And Harbor Touch is actually owned by a bank. It's United Bank Card out of uh, Pennsylvania. And they give away the whole system, right? It's like $3,000. They just give it away. Here, take the hardware, take the software, take the training, take the support. And because they're a bank, they make money on the transaction. So they take a higher percentage of everything that goes through and they process that, right? And they were able to develop this whole ecosystem uh, to sort of build a moat around uh, their business. And other you know, point of sale systems uh, like Zing, the one I was working on, we couldn't compete with that, right? We can't, we can't give it away for free. Uh, we don't own a bank. Why can't Google create a bank, or not necessarily just Google, but any large company with a lot of engineers that's capable of aggregating data in a more efficient manner? Because essentially, if we're saying that the 3% charge comes down to the loss of money that's stolen from the system, you know, I, I could argue Google could make a more secure system that aggregates that data in a more efficient way that drops that to half, right? I, I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that is just sitting stale. And if some entrepreneur were to find it, you know, and maybe you have to start with a big company to, to create that banking infrastructure, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, well, Mike, you know, the problem is when you look at what's being collected out of a transaction, and Faisal recently uh, posted something about this, very little money goes to the company that's actually processing the transaction. And unless you're creating your own credit card where you're, co- where you're collecting the interest on the money that's not being paid by the consumer, you're taking liability over the losses, and you're, you know, you're, you're willing to give less, inter- you know, charge less interchange to a merchant, uh, you know, you have to start asking yourself, well, how much money is left? You know, the, the, the Jack Dorsey of the early 90s uh, goes by the name of Steve Case. And Steve invented something called the gratis card for precisely the same reason we're talking about. He said, merchants are paying too much money. I'm going to create a payment vehicle that has zero interchange. And he called it the gratis card. And gratis represented no cost to the merchant. It later gestated into something called the revolution money card. And I'm very familiar with this because we actually sold it for Steve, uh, not just us, you know, thousands of companies. And the premise of, to a merchant, it was really a chicken or egg problem. And, and, and they really solved the, the uh, chicken problem, if you will. They seeded literally millions of consumers with these cards. They preloaded it with money. Again, we talked about this in one of the prior shows about uh, preceding. The problem was uh, getting the merchants to accept it was really a long challenge. He said, you're paying less. Why not accept this new payment vehicle? They were inventing it from whole cloth. Now, you got to remember, the last time a new payment vehicle was invented, it was called the Discover Novus Network. And the only reason that card even got off the ground is because Sears, at the time, was at the height of their um, uh, their their peak in consumer uh, consumerism. They took most Sears cardholders. Sears had a tremendous in-house a charge system. They took most of those cardholders and seeded the Discover card and did relatively well uh, for Discover. But Discover languished until they allowed independent selling organizations to sell the card. Uh, Discover now has universal acceptance in the United States because of an agreement with MasterCard. Although most people just don't know that as merchants that they can accept a Discover card. I love doing it. I'll 
put out a Discover card every now and then at a merchant, and they go, we don't accept that card. I go, swipe it. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, there's a lot of things to be said about that. Number one, that was the last great invented payment vehicle, and that was decades ago. Uh, decades ago. Isn't it now a good time? I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that mean to your point that now would be a, a okay, great time? Okay, so what what are we doing? Is Google going to become a bank and extend credit? What would because, go into that? I mean, if they were to do it, why? What's stopping them from doing that? No, 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 I'm not saying anything stops them. Okay, so the reason why a lot of people avoid becoming a bank is because of the tremendous amount of regulation that's involved. Uh, you know, I'm not saying Google would be opposed to it, and I'm not saying that I do not know or I do know whether or not Google has pursued this before. Um, let's just leave it at that. What but I they can just, say, but they could just go out and buy a bank. Well, yeah, of course, buy a bank. <laughs> yeah, well, they can go out there and buy Discover. One may one may argue that Discover is up for sale. You know, Google, one may argue are you that. listening? <laughs> you know, PayPal, are you listening? Um, you know, there's a lot to be said. Now, the genius. Speaking of Discover, the genius of what PayPal did. Well, Discover. By, I mean, I mean, Discover. I remember when it was launched, uh, ninety two or ninety one. I'm not sure. Sure. But had that had that one percent chargeback. I mean, you made money every time you used the card. They were pioneers. They were pioneers. Yeah. It's still it's still part of the program. I, I argue, I although I, I use American Express quite a bit. I argue that uh, the, the the Discover card is quite a, a very powerful tool for a lot of uh, young families, especially because you can get all sorts of extension and finance. But let's just look at Discover. Uh, Brian, here's here's just a fact acceptance. too. There's sure. there's six thousand eight hundred ninety five FDIC insured commercial banks in the U.S. as of October eighteenth. Sure. Now I just have a hard time believing Google would have any trouble buying one of them, or you know even getting sure. it set up them internally. Well, all those banks, you have to understand, most of them have uh, community banks. Some have statewide charter, some have nationwide. Well, not nationwide charter, but very few have federally chartered. You know, for nationwide banking. Okay. Sure. So, um, and 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 that money that they're keeping hundred hundred thousand that comes from fractional reserve banking. Uh, it's 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 something an actuary would be able to tell you how it works. It's all about statistics and so forth. That doesn't mean every account is insured hundred percent or hundred thousand. It just means that the Federal Reserve can print more money and 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 will say, okay, you know, hundred thousand times how many accounts you had that they will be able to bail you out and so forth. But uh, the whole thing is, if Google were to get a bank, uh, you just have sort of acclimatized yourself to the very same you know, uh, circle that you're trying to defeat. Uh, the banks have to follow the same procedures. Banks have to follow everything that, that that's happening in the payment space today. Is essentially banking. Uh, have no doubt about it. It's just a just a slightly modified version of banking. It's the money still in the bank. It's not going anywhere. Even when you, when PayPal says it load, you know, it's on my PayPal account. Well, guess where that money is? It's still in your wallet. And where's that wallet? With the bank. Hmm. Um, so and, and all that and and all it, that you're changing and all that you're changing in the front is just the way you do a transaction. Everything you're trying to do now on mobile apps is a variant of something you would do in real life and you're trying to model it and trying to juxtapose it onto a mobile app or you know or a web app or so forth but to go away with the model altogether i think we've we've discussed it so many times on uh, Duala. now these are the guys who are trying to change and say listen it should not cost you more than 25 cents irrespective of the amount to move money takers very few Will it will it will it outshine in a couple of years? We'll find out. Who knows? 
and this is valuable to the banks, right? Because then if their costs are lower, they can they can reduce the cost of their consumer and then have more business. You know, the, right? AC, the ACH system, which takes two days or three days, three days on an average to process transaction, processed 37 trillion U.S. dollars in 2012. Wow. 37 trillion. Now, you put that 37 trillion and you say, what's the base overnight lending rate? You find that out, figure that out, and you find out how much money the banks made. I, I'm, I'm, I think someone did a calculation, and it was somewhere around the, th- the somewhere between. Uh, please do not quote me on this, but somewhere between twenty-five and forty billion dollars wow. is what all the and banks made. As a perspective, there's only one point two trillion dollars in circulation. Well, well, so you know, money can go back and forth, back yeah, and forth, back yeah. and forth. So sure. Yeah. So, so between twenty-five and forty billion dollars in interest from overnight lending. Wow. Why would they want that to go to zero? Why? Well, yeah, if you become a bank, the, the, yeah, and there's no incentive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so here again, if I was Google, I'm going to give free advice to Google right here. If I was Google, I would I would buy uh, the Discover Network today. Uh, I would also buy another startup payment company, although that's probably going to happen anyway. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the reason why Google would want to do that is because money is information, and Google's about moving of information. And Mike, you make a very valid point. Uh, you know, could Google do some of the credit underwriting better? Yes. You know, if, if Discover already has nearly universal acceptance at every merchant in the United States, uh, and and it's being underutilized, I would say in the United States of America, the most underutilized payment asset. Uh, payment card asset is Discover, and uh, and, and you got to recognize that when Discover started on this road, they had their own teams of salespeople. They they tried to knock this thing out of the park, you know, uh, twenty thirty times with their own groups. It went nowhere. They never were able to get more than two to three percent. And finally, somebody inside of the company said, you know, let's go out to these independent selling companies and let's see what they do. The independent selling companies in a space of three years moved Discover's needle from 3 to 5% of merchants in the United States to almost 75% of wow. merchants in the United States. And, and I was one of them. I, it was a no-brainer. I'd go to a merchant and go, would you like to accept Discover card? Never heard of it. I go, it doesn't cost you anything to accept it more than, in fact, it costs you less. Sure. And that's it. It was a no-brainer. You know, and not only that, Discover compensated Every merchant with a bounty, you know, there was a bounty on every merchant. It went as high as $300, but that's another story. Uh, and then the last mile was finally completed to say the last 25% is when Discover and MasterCard sort of got into a, uh, uh, a network sharing agreement. So here we have this asset. So why would you and want to become they, a do bank they, do when, they you, actually, when you can buy this? Do they actually compete or are they more like, um, you know, you could almost argue Democrat and Republican are there to balance each other out, right? When one makes a mistake, then the other one comes in to save the day, and they're just this balancing pendulum. Is Visa and Mastercard? You know, is there anything behind the scenes that would be interesting to know? You know, I mean, are they almost owned by the same people, or do they have any, uh, or do they directly compete like Pepsi and Coke? Well, well, first off, discovers the outlier. Uh, if, if, in, in all of this, uh, American Express is too. And I can go down that. The American Express is an incredibly, incredibly valuable company. I think is this radically underutilized. You talk about a company that really has access to rich data because American Express is a central repository of every single merchant account. Whereas at Visa and MasterCard, all the merchants are spread around, uh, hundreds of banks. 
So, so in an American Express sense, American Express knows the sales of every single merchant and every single wow. consumer. So it's let me ask huge. you a question. If, if, if the, hypothetically, if the rate at which people were stealing credit cards went to zero, right? No one, there's no chargebacks uh, in that world. That must drastically reduce the cost to the, ish, the issuers for the credit cards, right? Because their assuming costs Assuming one thing, assuming the cost of money stays to this historically artificial, almost no cost. I mean, right now, if you look at the cost to borrow right, money. Right, right, right. True, 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 true. It, you can't take right, into account Throughout most of life, the cost yes. of borrow money effectively was always in double digits. It was near 10 to yes. 12%, usury so we'll, laws, things like that. We'll assume we're not going to change that part of it. We'll, we'll, we'll assume the majority of the cost is in the you know, $500 uh, stolen pair of shoes that happens, right? And they, the, who's, who does that go to? It doesn't go to the consumer directly. It goes to, it goes to the bank or the issuing cardholder, well, well, which wanna, they, they pass it to the merchant, which they then pass it to the consumer. What's the well, question? Yeah, because a chargeback, we can look at that. We can break down what a chargeback really means because, again, it— here's my, here's, my, here's my idea, right? And, and I, I can't seem to prove it wrong. There's an interesting company called Metro Mile that essentially says to you as a consumer, if you so choose, you can put this little device in your car, and we know everywhere you go, we know how often you drive, we know how fast you drive, uh, we know who's driving, and we can tell you that your insurance for your car is going to be drastically reduced, right? Because under the umbrella effect of a typical car insurance, they don't know anything about you. They don't know anything other than the car and what you tell them you drive to work, right? You answer those stupid questions that everyone lies on, and they're, they're kind of erroneous. So if you knew everywhere the car was, you can give a discount on the insurance because you know exactly how much that particular node or that car uses with respect to the whole. So you're almost insuring each car individually as opposed to all of them aggregated together and averaged out. Now, could you do the same thing with people, right? You know, I, I use an app called Moves where it just it keeps track of everywhere I go. What if I opted in as a consumer to let Google, when they buy Discover and they essentially own the banking infrastructure, to know everywhere I am so that they know every time I make a, a swipe on a credit card that I'm actually in the place that I made the card. Therefore, if they're, they, they would never even allow or immediately flag a transaction that occurred away from where I personally was. Well, Mike, that's that's exactly the premise of the PayPal wallet and the dreams of Square to create the Square wallet. If you know everything about the consumer and you know everything about the merchant, the the risk becomes less. And that's the sort of, you, we just kind of revealed the secret sauce that everybody's saying, well, you know, how are these companies going to monetize and things like that? Well, the dream is if you get enough people in that ecosystem, you kind of look at it and say, well, gosh, I can, I can arbitrage off the fact that the, you know, the risks aren't really all that great. Uh, and, and, and I could start making more money on these transactions and maybe I can start creating my own, my own credit vehicle. You know, uh, Bill Me Later is, is a good example of how a, a credit vehicle just kind of got wedged in there. Uh, and, and I think there is a future of that. Again, we have to always get back to the basic premise. Are you using credit or are you using debit? Because we can't interchange those. Say, say just credit, because I think credit is a, a, a bigger opportunity to reduce the cost when you have sure. knowledge on everything about that. Sure, consumer. so if you have unlimited amounts of knowledge, which is, we're approaching that, social signals and things like that, uh, and there's companies that are doing that very well, um, there's a company that's revolutionize, revolutionizing debt collection. And uh, uh, a gentleman who I think we would definitely want to have as a guest, uh, Ohad uh, Semit, and he's designed a system that takes a whole lot of social media signals and he allows individuals to graciously get back into 
paying their bills by writing the correct uh, messages to them, contacting them in a way that's less threatening than a, a standard uh, debt collector. And I think that's the beginning of how this system is going to be built because debt collection has to become modernized. The dunning phone calls and, uh, and inappropriate uh, times to try to reach out to people and uh, the fact that a, a whole generation of people pretty much you know, are not using the phone the same way that their parents and grandparents did. And they're not using the U.S. mails the same way. You know, they get a bill in the mail, they might not even ever see it. You know, there's a lot of people just don't get bills in the mail anymore. So if you have a collection notice, it's just going to get tossed. So reaching and collecting debt in America today has actually gotten more complex and, and harder. The only way you really can do it is via the credit report. You go on there and you just you know, shoot holes as much as you can into somebody's credit report in hopes that one day they want to buy a house or a car or another credit card and they want to go and pay down the, uh, the debt. If the credit report system was not out there, a lot of people would just never pay their bills. It's only that credit reporting system. I'm sorry, that's unfortunately the, the way some people see this. So the more risk that an individual takes, uh, you know... So, it, so is, is Square or when, one of these companies, are they going to buy a bank and essentially become the full... You know, Square going to stop working with uh, Chase in the next couple of years? I, it will never come to that. And, and you got to also look at the board of directors, Chase and Visa on the board of directors okay. of Square. So we, I don't want to even yeah. want to use there as an example. Yeah, they, say, say another. Have, is there an opportunity to do that? Square no, has but, sealed but, you its know, fate already where they can no, go. No, but there's been no example in the past where a company like, you know, so big has actually gone and bought a bank. I can't think of any. No, um, you know, in, in fact... Even Microsoft, you know, IBM, you name it. I mean, you know, they could have bought banks. Well, actually, IBM did uh, create a bank specifically for leasing. And this was back in the day when Big Iron cost a whole lot of money and there was a good financial reason to create a bank. And that was usury laws, again. A lot of reasons why uh, banks well, were created was because have, you couldn't have, charge interest. Leasing companies have been created by everyone. I mean, Oracle has it, Microsoft has it, Dell has it, but not a bank per se, you know? Well, actually, IBM, I believe, and again, I, I might have this wrong, they created a bank because they were charging interest and the UCC filings that they were using were making it much harder. And I wouldn't say they were operating a full-on, you know, uh, commercial bank in the least. It was, it was a limited-use bank. A lot of people are using the bank car, uh, bank corp corporation banking infrastructure. They're Delaware organization, and basically anybody that is doing any type of online banking is probably using their APIs. Uh, mm. One could argue that they're a great acquisition target. Uh, again, a hint to Google if they're going that direction. But again, will Google ultimately become an arbiter of financial uh, financial transactions? There's no doubt about it. Mm. I, I just think it's a matter of attention. They're they're you know they're focused on so many. things. Things uh, all the way out to you know self-driving well, cars. Yeah, and, maybe. The, yeah, yeah, that could be it, and they, they just don't understand and not how just, to do it. Not just Google, Facebook. I mean, I, I think Facebook but, has got more more data on you than uh, Google. Yeah, has. it's it's just yeah. such an obvious thing, and I think to a consumer, I mean, I don't know if you guys would disagree, but I think it's just completely, uh, you know, a no-brainer that you know, assuming you know all the data is not going to be shared, and you're comfortable with that, uh, which people are more and more going down that route. If you could say to someone, you're going to save three percent. Uh, from the guy standing next to you, if you just connect this account, so Google can actually or PayPal or whoever it may be can verify that you're in the place that you are. I mean, God, doesn't that? I mean, doesn't that change? Well, doesn't that disrupt? This is interesting. Uh, you know, we, did, we, we, 
we discussed this a couple of shows ago about you know identification services, KYC based on social media, uh, you know, uh, amplification. Uh, so why not? I mean, I, I I I certainly can foresee banking going that way. You know. Well, let's look at PayPal. Why is PayPal not a bank? They had opportunity. In fact, they were almost forced to become a bank at one at one point. A lot a lot of people may argue uh, fundamentally uh, the reason why. PayPal did not become a bank Who do they process because Who, of the it? onerous regulation. I'm sorry? Who does PayPal process payments? Well, Through? a whole lot of banks at lot. this yeah, point. Okay. I mean, yeah. you know, Wells Fargo was the, the bank that saved them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Wells Fargo did not come to their rescue at, at a very critical time, we would not be talking about PayPal. And a lot of it had to do with the laws we were talking about earlier of commingling funds. Wells was a, a very cutting-edge bank at that moment, uh, in history, they were one of the few banks that wanted to um, entertain some of the larger internet um, internet companies, but they they fought vigorously uh, not to become a bank. In fact, if you look at currently where your PayPal funds are being held, they had to stop granting interest because. Really, when you were interpreting some of the rules and laws, uh, if they were continuing to grant interest, even though they were 1099-ing that legally and showing it as income, uh, if they continued to grant interest, uh, the complications of the laws would have been they would have had to become a bank. So they're resisting becoming a bank aggressively. And we could go into a whole lot of argument on why that's why that's likely. Uh, now, that's why I what's would your, advocate, What's your quick thought, though? I mean, it's... It's interesting. Why wouldn't they do it? What's the what's your quick thought? Is it? It limits what you can do, and it limits how quickly you can respond from a technological standpoint to market shifts and changes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of um, uh, there's a whole lot of review that must be taking place. Uh, there's a whole lot of answering to regulators, uh, the Comptroller of currency, the you know all sorts of different uh, regulatory groups come in and examine yeah, your books. You I can't fly by the seat of your pants when you're a bank. You, you, yeah, you, their, their you elbow hand. room would be their elbow room would be very restricted. Uh, uh, you know, so so the question is, how does one deal with that? Well, I believe that Bitcoin and algorithmic currency are going to redefine the entire financial uh, infrastructure, and in some ways, they're going to liberate banks on what they can and cannot do. Mm. It's it's a difficult world because post two thousand eight crash of the mortgage marketplace in the United States, Americans awoke to the fact that these bizarre derivatives of derivatives were created on their mortgages and that their mortgage was fractionally owned by maybe 3,000 different entities. And it was hard for people to imagine that. And what (laughs) regulators don't want to happen again is to open up the doors in this new environment and say, okay, let's go and change the rules. But I think by, by... virtue of the way these algorithmic currencies are going to change thinking in the minds of a lot of people, it will lead some banking regulators to say, listen, if we're granting you know, these currencies this right, we should also grant banks some of the uh, you know, wiggle room to start experimenting with maybe their mm-hmm. own uh, version of this or acclimating into it. Now, we can get into the minutia of the day-to-day, you know, it's legal in Russia, it's not legal, it's, you know. But that's not really, the, the long-term, you know, scenario is the transport mechanism of using algorithms 
uh, to move uh, financial vehicles around. It's, it's here to stay. It will never go away. And yeah. uh, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, what it's called, you know, who gets to control it, you know, that's going to be the uh, get your popcorn, sit in your seat and watch it. It's going to be the fun, uh, uh, fun, fun aspect of everybody's life to see this uh, transpire because everybody's taking up their sides. Uh, you know, everybody's on the the right or left side of tulip mania on it. You know, and uh, uh, there's there's famous uh, investors on both sides of it. You know, you have one side that says yeah. that this is the, the the thing that's changing the world. And you have the other side say it's going to be knocked down by governments in, in a matter of months. You know, the the final analysis is going to be, uh, you know, if if the transport mechanism was instantaneous, and and we're talking about credit. Bitcoin is a cash transaction. It's not a credit transaction. It has no repudiation. It has no chargeback. Once it's done, it's done. And a lot of people don't really recognize that most transactions that take place in the United States are credit-derived. And we love the fact that there is repudiation. We love the fact that there is a chargeback. And so there's whole levels of trust organizations. You, everybody asks me, well, where's all the money going to be made? There's so many, so many opportunities. One could go in there and say, I'm going to create a level of trust for the merchant and the consumer. Mm. Now, the merchant, you know, in a credit card transaction, a merchant has almost very little rights. If the consumer complains loudly enough and it was a, a non-signature tra- transaction, meaning the person didn't see uh, the merchant physically, and they didn't handle the card and swipe it through a machine. Almost all those transactions could be held to a chargeback. So on, yeah. that, by default, all online payments could be uh, reversed if the right set of circumstances yeah. exist. So, I, I, how do you make Bitcoin a credit vehicle? That's or that. I, those I think uh, once the Wall Street and the financial institutions in the U.S. in particular start accepting Bitcoin, the protocol, as a transportation mechanism rather than the individual miners who are now uh, you know, controlling the nodes, I think you'll see a drastic change in how payments will be made. Uh, well, I think the miners are always going to be there because we're authenticating yeah, yeah, the transactions. Yeah, 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 of course. The blockchain. The blockchain. And again, that's what a lot of people ask is like, what, what are miners really creating? They're, they're creating well, the, the blockchain value. blockchain is, is getting huge by the day, so I think there will be some... Uh, uh, consolidation, I guess. Would well, be the yeah, what will happen is consumers won't have to download the blockchain to have a wallet and and, and, and it'll be mm. online. But, you know, what I'm really saying is, you know, it comes back to whenever we're going to talk about payments, we have to look at the most modern incarnation. And the most modern incarnation of this is going to be this liberated, free-flowing uh, system of algorithmic currency. Now, if you use that, if you use the this transport mechanism as a uh, as a payment vehicle, you know, it has its pluses and minuses. It becomes caveat emptor. It becomes the buyer beware. You send money to a merchant with Bitcoin and you know very little about them. You may never see your product and you, there's no chance you're going to ever see your money back. Mm. So the opportunity is available for the same trust organizations, we may call them banks, we may call them other things, to stand in the middle and make the transport mechanism. We were talking about the modernization of banking and everything. Well, if the transport mechanism is now this, what else is necessary? Well, you can grant credit on top of it. So banking can now utilize this system because right now it's a debit system. 
Uh, they mm. can create levels of trust inside of it. So if I wanted to, I could go to a bank and say, yeah, I want to I go and do a transaction to this merchant. But I don't know who they are and I don't trust them. You know, there may be a whole level of private enterprises that's, that, that rise up and say, well, I don't suggest you do business with that merchant. Mm. We don't know who they are. But I do know a merchant who sells exactly the same product and we'll vouch for them. Almost like a rating. You can almost have just a, a, like a Yelp rating review. All right. Get a patent, get a a copyright. You and I, all of us, we just created a brand new business premise. Anybody listening to my words out here, get at it. Because exactly what is going to go on is if I have a cash mechanism and I cannot trust who I'm sending the money to, what exists now is a huge opportunity that allows a mediating party, uh, you know, uh, to stand in the middle and to say, okay, I trust this merchant. I'm certain that they're going to deliver on the goods. And today we're calling them escrow entities and things like that. The average consumer in the United States will never, ever understand what an escrow agency is about. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even trying to explain that to the average person who's been using credit cards all their life mm. is, is, is a waste of time. So we have to call it something else. We have to get out of that mentality and we have Consensus. to consume- Consensus-based transactions, uh, trust yeah, I mean, transactions. There's something United trust States transactions, call. I like that. Yeah, yeah well, all right. You guys, uh, we're starting, we're doing a startup. Anybody on Quora, let's get our VC going. No, <laughs> let's call it the Angie's List, right? Everybody oh, God, no. Angie's, <laughs> Angie's List is terrible. Uh, everybody laughs at Angie's List, but you want to know something? If, if, if you want to get a good plumber and yeah. you're concerned about whether or not you know their pants are hanging too low. No, now if you want to get a new a new plumber for your house, uh, who do you trust? Now, at one time, the yellow pages had a level of trust, and a lot of people didn't understand this. The bigger the ad, yeah, was not was not the trust that that guy spent more money. And and, and I, I tell you, Google would have done really well if they understood mm-hmm. this, and they didn't. I talked to the people that were building the model of pay per click, and they never understood this, and they wish they did. The bigger ad in the yellow pages back throughout the last hundred years wasn't the guy that spent the most money. It was the one that was there the longest. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, that sucks. That, that, helps, uh, you know, that helps an old boy network. No, and what it means is that this merchant could be trusted more because they have longevity. Longevity equates into trust because over time, sooner or later, the bad apples are going to be winning. In a very primal system, you could say that's true. <laughs> Well, it actually but, worked. It, it, yeah, you it could say that. It worked better than anything else. But. You could say that in theory, but we have empirical data to support that. Sure. It turns out. It Just because Yelp out, wasn't around. Well, yes. It turns out that there were at least, that I'm aware of, 47 studies that went and so went that, into about 45, 50 different categories. Mm-hmm. And they were able to verify that throughout the, the heyday of these yellow pages, that the biggest ads were actually the most reliable services. Yes, yeah, so the, there really does seem to be well. take that same ph- uh, philosophy and apply it to sort of the next generation of uh, payments in Bitcoin or whatever currency it may be. I mean, that's... Yeah. So, all right. So why would a merchant who is accepting a cash payment want to be a part of an organization that grants trust? Well, they're out in the cold. We now have a, let's call it a buying group. I mean, that's what Angie's List was, is really a buying group. And again, it started because, you know, somebody was frustrated with, uh, mm. you know, their level of service. Yeah. This is going to happen either entrepreneurs like ourselves are sitting around talking about it already, and I know of a few people who are, 
Uh, but this is really early days. And I'm not just saying one trust group is going to be created. There's going to be many. And, and by the way, even if Bitcoin and algorithmic currency fell on its face, the world still needs more trust. The world still needs to trust merchants better and trust consumers. See, there's the other side of this. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at a, a small example, right? Like, even I, I, I'm up in San Francisco and I took a, a lift yesterday, and, and one of the lift drivers said one of the most revolutionary things to me. He says, I was a cab driver for 10 years. He's like, I hated it every day because people get in and disrespect me, and I and naturally have no respect for them. And a lot of times they stiff me, or they'll, you have know, been robbed three times. He was hit in the head and went to the hospital. He's like, then I joined Lyft. And I love every one of my customers. He's, he gave us candy mm. and drinks. We got in every one of them. I love them so much. You, you know, know we most- come in and we give him a review, and he has an amazing review, and he's got this profile, and he like builds it. But it's trust based on a system that's in place, right? And there's you another know? aspect to this that a lot of people don't recognize, uh, and I'll, I'm not so sure about Lyft, but Uber. Sure, uh, Uber's the same the way. Uber driver, the Uber driver gets to rate the customer. Yeah, same way. And, and, same and get way. this, Uber, their system is brilliant. They will. This uh, this mediate you from the system if you get enough votes that you stink as a customer. Yep. So your pickup times are going to get longer and longer. Uh, if you're going to be the last one to be picked up. Yep. In fact, at some point in time, Uber will probably say we don't ever want to pick yep. it up. Very true. That's so that's the it bar. works both ways, and this is what we're talking about. Guys, uh, so, so many ideas. This is great well, stuff. We just started uh, the potential of a dozen companies right here. You heard you know. it. <laughs> All right, guys, let's uh, wrap this one up and and, uh, look forward to next week. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.